On the worship guide that you received on the back, there is an advertisement for something called the Sanford Ministry Training Institute. Before we look at God's Word today, I just wanted to give a plug for that and let you know a little bit about uh, the Sanford Ministry Training Institute. I serve as the director now of the Morgan Extension of, of this partnership that we have in our county with Sanford University. And so this coming fall, starting on August the 20th, we will be having a class on the Minor Prophets, probably one of the most interesting classes that we offer because for many of us, the Minor Prophets are those, are those books that we skip through our Bible reading plan. Uh, they're those books that we don't understand very much. They're full of, of prophecies about locusts and things like that that we can't quite understand. And this class is designed to help you to understand what is Hosea saying, what is Joel saying, what is, who are the people that Obadiah were prophesying to, and why is that important for us as Christians in the 21st century? Why should we even care about the prophecies that these men prophesied hundreds of years before the coming of Christ? Uh, the partnership that we have with Samford is a unique partnership that allows us as churches to be able to provide quality theological and biblical education in our backyard with, uh, that is affordable and doable. And so if you want to get to know the Bible better, I would encourage you to consider being a part of these classes. I teach in the Sanford Ministry Training Institute, but I will not be teaching this fall. Uh, the class on the Minor Prophets will be taught by Dr. Wally Blackman, who's a pastor at East Highland Baptist Church and a friend of mine guy who, who is very, very knowledgeable in the Old Testament, loves to teach the Old Testament. So there are, there's some information on your worship guide. There are also some, some flyers that are available when you leave. And I would encourage you to pick up one of those if you're interested in knowing the Bible a little bit better uh, and want to know how to get involved. You can pick that up and, and mark that on your calendar and be a part of uh, the Sanford MTI. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open up to Matthew chapter 18 this morning. We're going to be looking... At verses 21 through 35, last week we looked at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And we observed in that parable that Jesus gave us, that, that Jesus gives us the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector to help us understand justification or how a sinful person is made right with a holy God. It's pretty much the most important question we can consider is how, how if I am a, a sinner who falls short of God's holiness and God's righteousness, how can I be made right with God? And Jesus tells us that in that parable of, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And we saw last week that we are not made righteous, never made righteous before God through our own works, our own merit, but we are made right by God solely by His grace and our humble admission of our need for His mercy. And we saw the tax collector as he prayed in the, in the temple that day and just said, Be merciful to me, a sinner. Now today we're going to look at that subject of mercy from a different perspective as we look at the parable of the unmerciful servant. Have you ever had to deal with someone who did you wrong or did something that hurt or angered you? And they apologized for it and asked you to forgive them and you did only for them to then do it again. Anybody ever had that happen to you before? Obviously, we've all had that happen at some point in time. Someone hurt us, someone caused us harm, someone did something inadvertently or maybe purposefully, and in the process, we got caught up in, in, in their sin, in their lack of judgment, and they come to us, they apologize, I'm sorry, 
would you forgive me? And we say, yes, I forgive you. And, and then they go out two weeks, two months, two years later and do the same thing, maybe even more than once, maybe even multiple times. And the question comes to us then, how should those of us who have been forgiven and made right with God, how should we react to those who sin against us? Once we come to understand how am I made right as a, as a, as a sinful person who has who continually broken fellowship and broken contract with God, and I'm made right by the mercy and the love and the grace of Jesus Christ, how then do we as those who have been forgiven and made right with God, how are we supposed to react to those who sin against us? And this is extremely important because we often find ourselves in a tension to resolve the need for justice when something is done that is wrong with the desire to be merciful to the one who has committed the wrong. So I want us to read this parable today in Matthew chapter 18 as we begin to work through this tension of mercy and justice. Matthew 18 verse 21 says, Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Or your translation may say seventy times seven. And then Jesus tells a story in verse 23. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went out and reported to all their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That last verse is a pretty scary verse when you read that and see that God holds us accountable to the way that we show mercy and forgiveness to others. The reality is that we live in a world, a fallen world, that is filled with fallen, broken people. And because of this, we not only sin against God, but we also sin against one another. Our sins don't just happen between us and God. Our sins cause collateral damage, often to people that we did not intend to hurt. You've seen this in your own life. 
It's, it's just the natural course of sin that when we do things, when we depart from God's Word, when we depart from God's way, when we do something that we shouldn't do that God does not desire of us, it's not just a problem between us and God. Our sins always have collateral damage, often into our relationships. Now, some people will wrong others maliciously without regard for the person whatsoever, such as in the cases of abuse and violence and assault. In those cases, people set out to maliciously harm others and don't care about what kind of damage it causes. But the reality is that most of the people that I know and most of the people that you know don't make many decisions in which they intentionally plan to cause someone else harm or pain. We often don't consider the potential collateral damage of our choices until after we've chosen them. So the person who looks down at their phone to text or to surf music while driving doesn't have a malicious intent to ignore others on the road during the process. And the co-worker who is sharing that juicy little bit of information that they heard with another person doesn't intend many times to purposefully cause emotional pain to someone else. The man who takes shortcuts in his business in order to increase his profit margin isn't really trying to intentionally put his employees' jobs at jeopardy or cause problems for his consumers. And even the addict who steals from friends and family in order to find something that will help him or her get his next fix really doesn't intend maliciously to harm those whom he's stealing from. That being said, there are some times when people set out to cause pain towards others through violent means. And in those cases, the issue of forgiveness can be very complicated, very difficult to work through. How do we walk through this? How do we balance the need for justice and restitution with the desire to be people of mercy? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive what? Mercy. It's those who, who have a pattern of being merciful people, those who have this ability to show mercy when often they should show a call for justice, but their ability to show mercy is a conduit through which they receive the mercy of God. But at the same time, we know that God is a God of justice and that the Bible declares that God is not a God who will let sin go unpunished. God is a God who does not allow the offender to go without dealing with the consequences of their sin. And so the reality is that balancing justice and mercy is difficult. Here's what I've discovered about me, and I dare say it's probably true of you too. Here's how we often balance mercy and justice. We want justice whenever we are wronged, but we always want mercy when we're the one who committed the wrong. You ever notice that? We often want justice when we are the victim, but we want mercy when we are the victimizer. When we're the person who did wrong, we want to say, well, wait a minute, that's not what I intended, and, and this is what, and please have mercy, and, and, and please forgive me, because we instantly know that, that we didn't intend to do all that we harmed someone, but oftentimes when it comes to someone who's wronged us, 
Our first instinct isn't mercy. Our first instinct is justice. And that's the question that I think Peter's wrestling with here. In context, what, what, this, what this scripture that we read today, it comes immediately out of verses 15 through 20 in which Jesus has, has taught about the right response of approaching conflict between believers. And he said that when we have wronged someone or someone has wronged us, we are to approach that person personally, individually, one-on-one, and seek to work out and reconcile conflict in such a way that leads to repentance and restoration. And so if we, if we have a fault against our brother or our brother has a fault against us, we're to, we're to go and work that out with them. If, if it can't be reconciled between the two individually, we're to bring others of the faith alongside of us to help us to, to mediate and work it out. Eventually, if, if that person who's the, who's the offender refuses, then eventually if they refuse to repent of their sin, you take it to the church. And so Peter, listening to this and listening to the fact that it's our responsibility to go and work out offenses with our brother, Peter has a very natural response to that question and ask a very natural, fair question that all of us wrestle with, which is, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In essence, Peter is saying, I know I should forgive my brothers and sisters when they harm me, but is there a limit to how often I'm required to do so? And wouldn't it make life a lot easier if it was? Wouldn't it make life a lot easier if we just had a a biblical principle that said, you're only obligated to forgive someone this much, and then after that you're not obligated anymore? You automatically probably see the problem with that is that it's completely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do we ever reach a point where we're no longer obligated to forgive someone? And that's a question that you and I probably wrestle with more than we like to admit. So it shows up in different ways, like that difficult co-worker that you have. And so you ignore and avoid him or her, but secretly you harbor bitterness or anger. And if truth be told, if we could peel back into your heart... What you really want is that you hope that one day they'll get what's coming to them. Anybody ever been there before? Am I the only one who actually wrestles with that? Or you had that one-time friend who who hurt you and you, you said that you forgave them for what they did, but you intentionally ignored their text and intentionally ignored their calls to get together and you've intentionally put distance in that relationship because you're not going to trust and be in danger of being hurt anymore. Or let's talk about family members. You know that family are supposed to forgive one another, but truth be told, there are people in your family that you are perfectly content with never seeing again, right? Because there's just been pain. There's been, there's been stuff there. And, and you say, well, I've forgiven them, but, but really, I don't really care if I ever see them again. That's, that's part of our broken human fallenness. We forgive, right, but surely forgiveness has its limitations, and surely forgiveness can only go so far, right? That just seems like a natural response. I'll forgive, but I tell you what, I'll never trust them again. That's how we say things. So how do we resolve this tension? Well, the rabbi of rabbis in Peter's day, 
had created a, a law within the Mishnah in which you were obligated to forgive someone up to three times and then you were no longer obligated to forgive them. Now, I'm not really sure exactly what rabbi instituted that and, and why they came up to three times. Three is a biblical number. So maybe that was a number in which they thought, okay, this would be the, the limit person does something to you and asks for forgiveness, you forgive them, they do it again, you forgive them again, they do it again, you forgive them, but the fourth time, you don't forgive them anymore. Peter, knowing this, had been taught all his life that, that you should forgive someone up to three times, just hears the Lord Jesus talk about going and working out and resolving conflict with a brother or sister in Christ, and so Peter understands that it's the nature of Jesus and the gospel to go above and beyond the law. And so Peter says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? And, and what, what you need to picture here is Peter, Peter's one of those guys, he, he's, he's always putting his foot in his mouth, you know, but at least he's always the one that's asking the question. He's always the one that's saying, Lord, can I come out to you? He's always the one that's the first to respond and so Peter kind of really is proud of himself here because he knows that the rabbis say three times. He doubles that and adds one. Up to seven? And, and, and he's thinking to himself that the Lord Jesus is going to go, Peter, you get it. Man, you are going over and above the law. But Jesus actually turns the table on Peter and says, Peter, seven doesn't even start. He says up to 77 or 70 times 7, which is 490 times. Now, again, Jesus doesn't do that in order to give us a big number. What Jesus does is, is, is he, number one, he takes the number 7, which is the number of perfection. That's probably why Peter has used it, because he's thinking it's a perfect example of forgiveness. And he, he multiplies it and adds more perfection on it. In other words, Jesus establishes a number so high that it would never actually be accomplished. You'd, you'd, you'd run out of counting how many times if you tried to count to 77 or 490 times that you had to offer a forgiveness. And Jesus does this to illustrate the nature of forgiveness to begin with. And so to do that, he gives us this story about this king and these two servants. Now the word servant would describe someone who lived in the kingdom. It, it wouldn't necessarily be a slave or, a, or, or someone who worked on the, in, in, the, in, the, in the palace. A servant would be anybody who fell under the, the rulership of the king. The king owns everything and everybody who lives in his kingdom is his servant. But the first servant is probably a nobleman, probably someone who, who is high in the kingdom because the Bible tells us that when the king began to settle accounts, he goes to settle accounts with this one, and this man's been entrusted with a very large sum of money. The Bible tells us that he had been entrusted with 10,000 talents. The talent was, was inter is an interesting, and it's a hard-to-calculate sum of money. A denarii, which is what he talks about later on in the verse, is, is about a day's wage for a laborer. Or in that day, about four grams worth of, of gold, we would call it. And so a, a common day's laborer would make a denarii. In, that was four grams. In, in comparison, a talent was about 33 kilograms or 75 pounds of whatever substance they would be measuring, gold or silver. 
And so this, this servant had been entrusted with 10,000 talents or 75 pounds of gold multiplied by 10,000. You do that and you get an astronomical sum into the billions and billions of dollars that this man had been entrusted with. And evidently he had squandered it. He had mismanaged it and wasted it and he thought that he had more time to get it all together and when the master called for the accounting, he was not able to pay. And so the judicious and right and just thing to do in the, in the light of this would be to enact some sort of punishment upon him. This man had been entrusted with an enormous amount of wealth. He had, he, had, he had not done well with it, and he needed to be held accountable for it. And the just thing for the king to do would be to put the man and his family in slavery, to sell them into slavery, to get back some of the money for, for their personhood in order to help offset some of the cost, and, and probably that that man would be having to pay back the rest of his life. But this man falls before the king and pleads with him to have patience and makes a promise. I will pay you back everything. Even though there was absolutely no way that this man could ever keep that promise. There was no way he had the resources to pay back billions and billions and billions of dollars. Have you ever, have you ever done that before with God? Have you ever gotten before God before when you did something that you shouldn't have done when you committed a sin, when, when something happened and consequences came out of that that you never intended and you got before God and you said, God, have mercy on me. God, I promise you, I will do whatever it takes to pay him back. But the reality is that you can't keep that promise and neither could this person. And so the king in the story does something absolutely unthinkable. He not only rescinds the punishment by taking away, putting the man and his family in slavery, but he forgives the debt. That's what it says in, in verse 25 or 26, at 27, out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him of the debt. You see what's happening here? This is mercy and grace in action. This is a mercy that can only come from God. This is the grace and mercy of the gospel. This is a picture of you and me as sinful people before a holy God with an astronomical sin debt that we cannot pay off. Our sin and our violation of God's law has accumulated over and over and over and over again. And our separation from God is so large that when God calls us to account, we stand before Him and there is absolutely no way that we can pay it. And we bow before Him and we say, have mercy, have pity on me. And the Bible says that God looks down at you and me and out of pity for us, He releases us and forgives us of our sin debt. God takes our account and writes paid in full across it. And that is the beauty and the grace of the gospel. And you would think that someone who had been shown such grace and mercy would be forever transformed, right? You would think someone who stood before the holy and high king sovereign of the universe 
and had been shown that amount of grace and mercy that He would not only not hold you accountable for your sin debt, but that He would pay for your sin debt Himself and write paid in full across it, you would think that if that happened to you and that happened to me, that we would be forever transformed and that our view of grace and mercy would be forever transformed. But that's not always the way it happens because... This servant goes out and finds another servant who owes him money, a hundred denarii, about three months' wage, and demands repayment. And when the servant cannot pay and begins to beg for patience, just like this servant had done a few hours before, this man shows no patience, he shows no mercy, he only demands justice. And so he does the just thing. Because this man cannot pay his debt, he locks him up in prison until he can pay his debt in full, which is a totally just solution. Remember what I said a second ago about us, that when it comes to sin, we always want justice from those who wrong us, but we always want mercy when we're the ones that commit the wrong. This is what happens in this story. And so the Bible says, when the king hears about what the servant first did, he was greatly distressed and called the man in to answer for his actions. And the first thing he says is, you are a wicked servant. And he points out that his debt had been forgiven, and because of that, he should have understood the nature of forgiveness and offered the very same thing. Because he did not, he put the man in prison until he could pay off the original debt, which is a feat which could have never been done. And immediately as we read this story, when we, when we get to, to verse 28... And we see the actions of this first servant towards the second service. We are immediately recognized that there's something terribly wrong with this man. Even people who do not understand the gospel, even people who do not embrace the word of God, if you told them this story about these two servants and you said this first servant was, was forgiven of an astronomical sum of money and then went out immediately and began to choke and put into prison a man who owed him a minute amount compared to what he had been forgiven of, even people who don't know Jesus would say there's something wrong with that person. And that helps us to understand the whole point of the parable to begin with, which is this. Those who have experienced the depth of the mercy and forgiveness of God should model forgiveness to those who sin against us. That's Jesus' whole point in the parable. Those of us who've been changed by the gospel, those of us who've been called by God, those of us who've been saved and forgiven and who have experienced the depth of the mercy and forgiveness of God should be those who model forgiveness to those who sin against us. Or, to put it another way in your notes, to be forgiven freely is to freely forgive. To be forgiven freely is to freely forgive. Jesus' whole point of the story was to answer Peter's question, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answers by saying, your forgiveness to others should be a reflection of your understanding of the forgiveness that you have been shown by your master. He's basically telling Peter, you're asking the wrong question. You're starting in the wrong place. It's not about keeping score, it's about keeping clean slates. 
It's not about trying to figure out how many times am I obligated to forgive. It's about reversing that and reversing our perspective and seeing that we are people who have been forgiven of an incredibly amount of of debt that we could never pay, and we've been forgiven of that. And because of that, we should be conduits of grace and mercy to others. You see, the servant didn't give forgiveness for the debt that was owed to him because he really didn't value the forgiveness that he had been shown in the first place. For him, forgiveness was nothing more than avoiding consequences. And unfortunately, I think sometimes in the church, that's what we categorize forgiveness as. When it comes to understanding forgiveness, for many of us, we never get much further past avoiding the consequences of our sin. That Jesus paid for it and that that he's forgiven us of it, so we don't have to bear those consequences, those eternal consequences anymore. But forgiveness is more than just avoiding consequences. Forgiveness is an act, a conscious act of mercy towards an undeserved sinner. That's what forgiveness is. And the people of Jesus should be the best examples of giving forgiveness and keeping short accounts than anyone else. But most of the time, that's not the case. And when we harbor grievances or refuse to offer forgiveness... The consequences to others and the consequences to ourselves is deadly. Forgiven people forgive people. It's just the way it works. Forgiven people forgive people. Now that being said, there is that natural tension in our humanity about how we work through that. And what do we do about people who who don't seem to be repentant, who don't seem to really want to change their actions, and how how do we work through that? We begin by remembering that those who've been forgiven freely forgive freely. Let me give you three forgiveness principles here that I see in this text that come out of this main point real quickly before we leave today. Number one, understanding forgiveness doesn't begin with how many times I should offer forgiveness, but how much God has forgiven me. That's where we understand forgiveness. Understanding forgiveness doesn't begin with starting with how many times I should offer forgiveness, but understanding how much God has forgiven me. You ever find yourself saying to your kids or maybe saying to a, a, somebody that you supervise at work, you ever find yourself saying, the last time you forgive this, the last time you did this, I forgave you, and yet here you go doing it again? You ever said that? Or you do this to me every time. You make the same mistakes over and over and over. You ever said that before? Peter's question seems like a logical question to you and me because we know that as people who've been shown grace and mercy, we need to forgive others, but we also wrestle with the limit. No one can be expected to forgive someone of the same offense over and over and over again, can they? And Jesus' point to Peter is that real forgiveness never starts keeping count in the first place. Genuine forgiveness never keeps count. Genuine forgiveness for a Christian always begins with a heart which has been transformed by the gospel. And if Peter had a strong awareness at that point of his own sinful depravity, if Peter had a strong awareness of how many times he had sinned against God, and yet each and every time he asked God for forgiveness, God gave it, If Peter had understood that when he asked the question, he would have never asked the question to begin with. 
You see, your example of offering mercy and forgiveness reflects your understanding and application of the gospel. Your example of offering mercy and forgiveness reflects your understanding and application of the gospel. When you see what God has done for you and you try to count how many times God has forgiven you, you start to lose count after a while. You never even get up to 490. You just get overwhelmed with the amount of mercy and forgiveness that God has shown you. And then you don't even have time to begin to count how many times people sin against you. The gospel is beautiful. It says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There's no limit to that verse in 1 John 1, 9. John doesn't say if we confess our sins to God a hundred times, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He doesn't say if we confess our sins to God a thousand times, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. But a thousand and one, that's it. You've gone too far. It just says He is faithful and just every time to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 103, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does He repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. This is how God deals with our sin. And so whenever we start to ask the question of forgiveness by what others have done to us, the temptation is to put ourselves in a place of ultimate authority over them and to forget that you and I are under the sovereign authority of God. And that our forgiveness and our offering of forgiveness and mercy reflects our understanding and application of the gospel. Now, sometimes Christians will ask me, if God has already forgiven me of all of my sin, then why do I need to come to Him and ask for forgiveness of specific sins that I've committed? When Jesus died on the cross, He died on the cross to forgive me of all of my sins. I am wholly, completely, and perfectly forgiven. All of my sins, past, present, and future, have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, and I am completely forgiven. So when I get angry and yell at the person on the road tomorrow... Do I really need to go to God and say, forgive me for my impatience in the words that I said? Why should I do that? God's already forgiven me, right? Well, the, the, this comes to an understanding that there are really kind of two parts of, of forgiveness. One is judicial forgiveness. This is not in your notes. But one is judicial forgiveness and the other is parental forgiveness. It's kind of the best way to describe them. Judicial forgiveness happens at the moment of salvation when we are justified and made right with God. So because of the righteousness of Christ credited to our account, our debt is marked paid in full and we are completely forgiven. That is a judicial act of God. It's a conscious decision by God to forgive us of the penalty of our sin. We are fully, freely, and completely forgiven at that moment. That's judicial forgiveness. But parental forgiveness is the forgiveness of God as a father. And our continual lure towards sin causes relational damage between us and God. And so while the penalty of our sins may have already been paid by Christ, the conscious act of our sin causes distance between us and God. And so while, we, while God has already forgiven us of our sins in a judicial sense, we need to come to Him to ask for forgiveness in a parental sense to repair the broken relationship that our sins establish between us and God. That's why Jesus said to us as we pray every day to pray, forgive us of our sins. 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. Every day we go to God and ask Him to forgive us of sins, and not just a, not just a casual blanket, God forgive me of my sins, but, but going to God and recognizing those areas in our life where we have departed from His plan and His purpose and confessing those things individually to Him. And as we do, we restore a right relationship with God the Father. We receive parental forgiveness, and what has caused the distance between us and Him is restored. Understanding forgiveness doesn't begin with how many times I should offer forgiveness to others, but understanding how much God has forgiven me. Number two, forgiveness is offered before the debt is paid, not after. When it comes to forgiveness, forgiveness is offered before the debt is paid, not after. We see this in verses 24 through 27 when the Bible says, When the king began to settle his accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. A promise to pay the debt. But out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him of the debt. There was no payment plan set up. The king didn't say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to forgive you of the debt if you will start doing this every single day for the next 30 years. There was no partial payment of the debt. There was no partial restitution. There was no pay me what you can and I will forgive you for the rest. There was complete and total forgiveness of the debt before the debt was ever even initially paid. But when the servant went to his fellow servant, he didn't do the same thing. He said, when you pay me what you owe me, I will forgive you of your debt. You can go into prison and you can earn some money there and I'll take everything you have. And when you pay me what you owe me, then I will forgive you. And that's the way a lot of us tend to operate when it comes to forgiveness. We tend to say things like, I will forgive him, but before I forgive him, he's got to do this first. You ever said that to somebody? Somebody comes to you and says, you know, you and, you and, you and Tom, y'all need to get together and y'all need to work this out. Well, I will, but before, before we do, he's got to do this. What are you asking for? You're asking for partial payment. You see, we forget how forgiveness works, that forgiveness is choosing to cancel a debt and not choosing to postpone payment. Forgiveness means that I consciously and purposefully choose to release you from your obligation to me. This is why the Bible tells us that when God forgives us, He removes our sins from us as far as the east is from their west and remembers them no more. When, when the Bible says that God doesn't remember our sins, it doesn't mean that God consciously chooses a path of amnesia. Okay? Our God is an omniscient God, meaning that our God knows all things that are knowable, all things at all times. Which means that every single sin that you have committed against God, God still knows. But the Bible says He chooses to remember them no more. What does that mean? That means He chooses not to hold us accountable to them anymore. He doesn't hold them against us. He chooses to cancel the debt, not to postpone payment. R.C. Sproul, preaching on this passage, said, to ask the question that Peter did is to misunderstand the meaning of forgiveness to begin with. Because if you sin against me and I call on you and you repent and I forgive you, 
And the very next day you go and do the very same thing, that new sin is one, not two. That's interesting. If I choose to forgive you and the next day you do the very same thing, that's not two, that's one. You know why? Because you chose to forgive the first one, therefore you don't count that against that person anymore. It's as if it never happened. There is no debt. And so to count and add means that I really didn't forgive you in the first place. This is what I think Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't keep a list and say, well, you did this over and over and over and over again. And that's hard. I was talking to my father-in-law about this Friday, and we were wrestling with this whole idea that it is very hard for us to understand how to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. But that's exactly what the Scripture says. Just as Christ has forgiven you, so you also ought to forgive others. So when God's people truly offer forgiveness, we don't do so on the basis of partial payment. And we shouldn't add qualifications to our forgiveness list. Sometimes God will call you to forgive someone who shows no contrition, no remorse, and has taken no responsibility whatsoever for their actions. But you're called to forgive. And sometimes you are called upon by God to offer forgiveness when you know that person will quite likely repeat that action very soon. But you are still called to forgive. I was reading the story of Corey Ten Boom in one of the commentaries, who was a prisoner in Nazi Germany and was in a concentration camp. Most of her family died in that concentration camp. She came out, became a very strong advocate for the Christian faith, one of the, the heroes of evangelicalism in the 20th century. And yet many years later, she was in a, in a situation where she came across one of the guards who had imprisoned her and had done vile and heinous things against her. And he came up to her and apologized for what she did. And you would think with all the things that that lady had suffered that, that it would be right for her to say, well, I forgive you, but I'll never forget. And yet her act to look at this man and to offer full, complete forgiveness without qualification whatsoever was such a beautiful, beautiful example of the forgiveness of Christ. Forgiveness is offering forgiveness before the debt is paid, not after. And it's choosing to cancel the debt, not to postpone payment. Let me tell you the third and final lesson, and that is that refusing to forgive eventually will lock you up in a greater prison than the one you refused to forgive with in the first place. I've learned this lesson the hard way. Verse 34 and 35, the Bible says, In his anger the master delivered this first servant to the jailers until he should pay off all his debt, so my heavenly Father will do to you, every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. The story of this unmerciful servant has a tragic ending because of his unwillingness to offer mercy and forgiveness. He is eventually called back before his master to give an account and then put in prison just as he had put the other slave who couldn't pay him. And it's interesting because it's hard for us to try to figure out what's happening at the end of the story here, but here's what's happening. Because the debt of that servant was so high to begin with, the length of his incarceration would be much greater. The first servant had to stay there until he could pay off a hundred denarii. 
three months' wages. The second service would ha- servant would have to stay there until he could pay off billions and billions and billions of dollars, something that could never happen. And this is what I mean when I say refusing to forgive will eventually lock you up in a greater prison than the person that you put in there to begin with. Because refusing to forgive will lock you up in a prison of anger and bitterness and resentment. And these things will affect not only your personal relationships, but they will also affect your relationship with God. This is what Jesus had in mind when he said, When you come to the altar and offer your worship and remember that your brother has an offense against you, leave your gift, go be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your worship. Why did Jesus tell us this? Because it's impossible to fully and freely worship a God of infinite grace and mercy if you do not understand and apply that grace and mercy to others. It's impossible to come in here with a heart that is willing to open up and worship the God of heaven and thank Him for His infinite grace and mercy towards you, a sinner, when you are harboring bitterness, resentment, and anger towards other people because of your refusal to forgive. Ultimately, if you refuse to forgive, it will lock you up in a prison that will destroy the relationships that you have around you and ultimately will destroy your relationship with God. Some have questioned whether this parable suggests that possibly we can lose our salvation since, since this, this servant was put in prison. Is this, a, is this Jesus saying that if we refuse to forgive that God will somehow rescind His saving grace over us? And that's not what is happening in this parable. If grace is the unmerited favor of God, and if grace is something that by nature we cannot earn by our actions, then grace by its very nature is something that we cannot lose by our actions as well. And so when he's put in prison, it's not him losing the salvation of God. Instead, it's what Jesus is showing us is the natural implications of our harboring bitterness and unforgiveness and how it will eventually cripple our spiritual growth in Christ-likeness and cause us to lose relational favor and intimacy with the Master. That's what happened to this prisoner. The great tragedy wasn't that he was put into prison. The great tragedy was that he lost favor with his Master who had shown him such grace and mercy to begin with. At the end of the day, we all come to understand that you and I cannot perfectly demonstrate the same forgiveness to others that Christ has given to us. There's no way we can perfectly do that. Yet, we also know that it's the nature of those who have been forgiven much to forgive others. And to be forgiven freely is to freely forgive. And those who have experienced the depth and mercy of the forgiveness of God should model forgiveness to those who sin against us. It's difficult to do, but it's what we're called to do as the people of God. Which brings me then to the most important question, and that is this. In your personal relationship with God, have you ever really experienced the beauty of mercy and forgiveness? Have you ever come before a holy God, understanding the weight of all of the violations that you've done against him and his holy character? Have you ever come before that God 
and simply did what this servant said and said, have mercy on me, have patience on me, just like the tax collector we talked about last week, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have you ever come before that holy God and not said, I promise to do better, I promise that I'll go to church, I promise I'll be a good person, I promise I'll give money to charity and I'll help little old ladies across the road. That's not what God's looking for. He's not looking for a transactional situation with you. He's looking at your need for the gospel and your need for grace and mercy. Have you ever come to that God and said, have mercy on me, a sinner? If you've never done that, we want to give you the opportunity to do that today. We want to give you the opportunity to come and stand before a holy God and say, God, I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin, to cleanse me, to wash me clean, to make me a new person. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Before we leave this morning, we're going to sing a song of response. We want to give you an opportunity to respond to the mercy and grace of the King. We want to give you the opportunity to come with your sin debt just like this servant and stand before the sovereign King of the universe and lay that sin debt before Him and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so in just a moment as we sing this song, if you need to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we want to give you the opportunity to do that today. You can come talk to one of our decision counselors. They'll share with you the gospel and how you can know Christ as your Savior. Or maybe you need to talk to somebody afterwards. You just want to grab me or one of our staff members and say, hey, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about my relationship with the Lord Jesus. Whatever it is, today is the day of salvation. Don't leave here today without settling accounts with God. Father in heaven, we ask you this morning to do what only you can do, and that is to bring death, to bring life from death, to take those who are spiritually dead and bring us into spiritual life. God, we ask you to change us this morning by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so for anyone here today, Father, who needs to know you as Lord and Savior, would you give them the, would you give them the courage to admit that and to step out and to trust you today? And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, sing this song with us?